Hi, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to Books and Beyond with Bound, where we talk to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick. Yeah, but before we dive into this episode, let me tell all of you that it's Tara's birthday today. Happy birthday, Tara! Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> and actually, on your birthday, I'm so happy that we covered one of your favorite topics as partition literature. We spoke to Anshul Malhotra, the oral historian, the co-founder of the Museum of Material Memory, and the author of Remnants of a Separation. Yeah, I mean, I think this is genuinely one of the episodes that I've been most excited about because, as I said, as you said, she mentions partition literature, and so the book is very, very interesting. Uh, it covers people's stories of partition using the objects they took with them when they fled. So we really get to see the lives of these people, what they must have gone through, and through objects as ordinary as kitchen utensils. and as amazing as you know pearl necklaces um and these stories range from you know people in so archal even travel to lahore uh, in delhi all kinds of walks of people and how the partition affected their lives yeah and i especially loved the episode because she you know walked us through her interview process like how she couldn't really ask them about their trauma um directly so she used it i mean she did it through objects i mean you have to approach people differently you know keeping in mind that the topic is sensitive right i think that's what we do on our podcast as well yeah i mean it's all about the kind of questions you ask is yeah. the kind of responses that you do uh that you do get what i loved about this episode and she shares that she's never spoken about this before is uh, an incident in which she almost gave up um so you know she spent a lot of time in lahore doing research and interviewing people and she had this driver khisarji who used to actually source stories for her um and on a side note we also you know spoke about how this whole process was very collaborative uh which she also said wasn't addressed before that you know her acquaintances you know uh, people like khisarji got her stories but anyway coming back to the anecdote um so she had to go to a temple in lahore to meet a hindu man who had never left and she thought she was going to get a very interesting story out of him but when she went there she found he was a bit reserved and she didn't really get the material she was looking for even though you know she did approach the subject very sensitively and she shares with us how, how you know that sort of almost made her want to give up uh but yeah, and, yeah the head yeah, yeah with the head of her driver yeah yeah and yeah. he was there for her i mean i think he's one of my favorite people from the book yeah definitely so you know like this she shared shares with us you know her process but also many interesting anecdotes about how she went about creating this book which took up most of her 20s yeah so let's speak to her and learn more about partition and we actually have an interesting personal essay contest on partition and anshul malhotra herself is going to be reading these essays more details about it are mentioned in the description and in the outro so do stay tuned hi anshul welcome to our podcast it's so nice to be here thank you for having me hi anshul yeah hi. we absolutely loved your book Our first question to you, Anshul, is you know if you had to describe your book, uh, which is Remnants of a Separation, um, in one line, what would it be? Because we do know that your book is a couple of years old, so we want to know what does your book mean to you at this point. I would say that it's a human history of partition. 
Nice. Yeah. That is what I'd always hoped to write because um, the biggest uh, issue for me was that people who lived through partition had become data. They had become numbers and there were no stories about them. So I had set out to write a human history of partition, which just happened to be through the lens of objects. And you have a lot of friends also who've read your book. And so we try and crowdsource some questions also sometimes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, so we talk about partition and all of this. And the conversation came that, you know, it is about statistics. And that's something that I think, you know, all of us who've read your book really enjoyed. We started thinking of objects in a completely different way because what you do is you use these objects that people took during the time of partition um, and you use those as a way to understand loss or their stories, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's something we haven't seen before. So how did it even come to you that, you know, you'd focus on objects? Well, mostly because the conversation around partition has been a conversation of silence. And that silence has been resolutely practiced by people who live through partition because it's just an unmentionable event. Like, how do you actually start to talk about it? If I think about my own family, I don't know the questions I first asked to begin this conversation because it was such a difficult subject. It was always like, you can't ask about it. You shouldn't ask about it. It's always shrouded in pain. and not just physical pain, but you can also feel the pain. You know, when someone is like, I don't want to talk about it, you know that they're serious because something so horrible has happened in their life that they don't want to revisit it. So the lens of objects came as, um, as a catalyst, I would say. If you can't ask directly about something, what are the avenues you can use to ask about a traumatic loss indirectly? You know, can you use the aid of certain things? Um, Or, I don't know, just questions that unaided were very direct or very, that felt almost intrusive, became a little more palpable when I introduced the object. So, for example, it's very difficult to just uh, sit with someone who's lived through partition and say, uh, I've never felt anything like this. I've never seen anything like this. Tell me what happened. Did you see violence? Did you see madness? Did you see rioting? These are very direct questions. And I, even as I'm repeating them now, I can feel their directness. But using the aid of the object is, um, is gentler, of course. And it suddenly directs the attention of the person towards the object. So every memory that is unearthed is unearthed because of that object. So for example, if I want to know about partition through a book that was carried by somebody who was in school at that time, I would perhaps ask something like, why did you carry this book? And then they would tell me. And I would say, what was this book used for? What subject did you study? What school did you go to? Where did you live? What kind of community was it? What kind of newspapers came to your house? Okay, what languages did people speak in your house? How did you first learn about partition? Was it through the newspaper? Was it through the radio? You know, So you're using the object to build an ethnographic landscape of that time because Partition is not just a one-day event. It happened over time. So if you use something to build the landscape, you can also see how the landscape was fractured because of partition, which is what I was trying to do. So uh, if you see in the book, every conversation is not about partition and it almost never starts with partition. It starts with like normal life. 
you know, how was your life? How was your childhood? What did you eat? What did you see? Who were your friends? Because you're trying to understand what pre-partition life was like. You know, we did sense that, um, you know, it, it goes through the lens of, you know, understanding somebody not really with an agenda or not really with wanting to know how really, you know, the partition affected them, but just, you know, getting to know them. I think that's what even made us uh, comfortable as readers. You know, and, and my favorite object actually from the book was the Mang Tikka uh, that oh, your wow. great grandmother carried. And because I've always found them fascinating, you know, because being a Catholic, you know, we don't wear um, right. these accessories. Yeah. And I've always grown up watching these in Bollywood and I've always wanted to know more about them. And, and I really found that that chapter to be really really uh moving especially because you know how it was almost on the verge of being sold but then uh it has been you know kept mm-hmm. what about you tara i was very interested in also the utensils like you said but i love the story of the lady uh who now lives in lahore who you know she grew up in this haveli and the only thing that she could slip into the folds of her clothes were the pearls oh azra uh, haq yeah yeah azra haq so it was so i just loved you know because you could sense that nostalgia when she looked at those pearls yes. you could sense that nostalgia that she was feeling for her childhood and the things left behind um yeah. so you know a lot of these objects evoke so many memories and i think what was also really interesting to me in the book was uh you know how you recounted your family's histories because you know so like like so many indians even my family has a history so my great grandparents and grandparents were from karachi and they moved to bombay so you know every sort of so many families have these histories so it's so nice that you you know been able to record it's it's quite easy to speak to strangers relatively easy at least because you don't have the baggage of family right because when right, you start right. speaking in depth to your family you may unearth things that you didn't know had happened to them and it changes your perception of them so um and of course there is an immediate like uh, like i remember my grandfather just shut me down cuz like i don't want to talk about this i don't know why you want to know about it you know you were talking about the utensils that they carried it took me months to actually get him to open up and and make him understand that this was a conversation worth having because he didn't think that you mentioned that in the book as well you know a lot of the reluctance to relive these traumatic uh, memories you know yeah. um so what was you've narrated so many stories so many people's lives do you have a favorite and if so you know would you be able to narrate the story of any such individual from your book for our listeners you know to be honest every story remains with you in some in some form um and it's kind of like uh, i don't know picking your favorite is a weird thing because how do you pick your favorite uh because everyone says things that remain with you they're poignant they're uh, unforgettable azra haq is someone that i i can never forget her because she was just such an incredible person she you know in those days to fight against your father and join the army and fight in world war 2 she worked as a driver you know it was it was incredible because if you met her in her later years she was so dainty and feminine and demure and it kind of crashes all your perceptions about what women can do so i loved spending time with her and every time i went back i would see her um there was of course the story of prabhjot kaur and her husband exchanging poetry across uh, again battlefields while he was in baghdad and she was in lahore and they would write 
poetry and letters to one another that remained with me. Uh, the story of Ajit Kaur and her sword from Kashmir uh, that remained with me. My own grandparents' stories, of course. Uh, it's hard to pick one. Yeah, it's like uh, you know when we ask um, a writer which is your favorite book, and they say it's it's really difficult to pick because you know all of them uh, you know mean mean something or another to us. Um, in a way, um, you know, so what what we found really fascinating is, Anjul, that, you know, you've called yourself an oral historian and, uh, you know, you chose this project, a very, very specific project, you know, and this identity for yourself in your 20s when, you know, most of us in our 20s, we are confused, you know, like we don't know what to do with our lives. So, you know, can you share with us the aha moment of, you know, how you came about becoming an oral historian? I feel like I'm still confused, though. Let's just put that as a disclaimer. Um, well, I in my 20s, when I started doing this work, I was in grad school in Montreal. And I don't think a lot of people realize this. I think they think I studied history uh, during my years at college. But in fact, I studied to be a metal engraver. So all of my education is in traditional printing. I learned uh, engraving, lithography, papermaking, bookmaking. Uh, and I used to teach it at the time. And uh, it was 2013. I was 23 years old. I was on a sabbatical from grad school. And I was back in India. And I, I don't know. The aha moment was just an aha moment for me because there were a lot of other people in that room that didn't seem to understand the gravity of what had happened. So I was with a friend of mine who was a journalist writing a story on old havelis in Delhi, old houses in the city of Delhi and my mother's ancestral home is in North Delhi near the university campus and it was built in the 50s. Uh, it's really old like chipped floors and you know original wooden doors and everything and so my friend asked me whether we can go and look at that house and speak to my mother's family and so once we were there my nana's eldest brother he got out all of these old objects and it was a really beautiful and transportive kind of moment because the minute he started talking about these old objects, some of which that had been carried from Lahore, like a gaz, a yardstick used to measure fabric and a ghada used to make lassi. He completely, he became almost childlike. He became like a five-year-old child. He remembered the city of Lahore. He remembered the street. He remembered his parents using these objects. And that was the moment that I realized of course, we put parts of ourselves into objects. Objects hold memories. We know that. But it was such a visceral and um, almost touchable experience. Like the fact that he was going back in time in front of me and not just back in time, but also back across this impenetrable border between India and Pakistan. He was seamlessly transported to Lahore to these objects, holding them, talking about them. And I think that was the moment that everything just clicked. And you understood that this was something you had to pursue further. But, you know, things like I would say that I was willed into writing about partition out of necessity because I may have been young, but I realized quite early on that not enough people in our generation were writing about it. And I wouldn't say that no one in our generation was. There are certainly people my age that are writing on partition, but, you know, every generation needs its own historians to make the generation understand their past in language that befits us. So uh, I feel like I arrived at it at the right time. 
I use the term model historian very consciously because it is not like an academic historian. And sometimes the term oral history in itself gets a very bad rep because it is seen as like pure memory or something that eludes corroboration or veracity. But I think with partition, uh, which is an event that almost completely exists through oral testimony, and the largest databases we have about partition are oral testimony, I think that this term was very essential for me to adopt. So oral history is not journalism. It's not simply interviewing someone. It is, I I suppose, exhumation of lived experiences and memory. It is a penetration of human memory in some way in order to weave together the events of the past. And partition is an event of versions. It's kind of extraordinary that a single event can impact so many different people of religions, communities, ethnicities, uh, geographies in so many different ways. So what we're trying to do is to collect the versions of partition. We're trying to build a human archive to know what people went through because we already know what is happening in politics. We already have archives to tell us that. But sadly, in the archive, the person's voice is absent as if it didn't impact people at all. So what we are trying to do is to build, as I began the conversation, a human history of partition. And I think, uh, you know, for me, certainly the person angle is what really drew me to Mm -hmm. partition. Um, And I've been interested in partition, I think, um, you know, for the last sort of 10 years, I did my thesis um, on refugee rehabilitation in college. Um, And and I, yeah, and I came to it, I think, because of this family connect and that need to want to revive it um, and because of these personal stories and along the way I've met a lot of other young people who um, are also very interested and who also want to sort of revive these memories Mm -hmm. um, are interested in partition literature and it makes you think because it's very interesting that you said that uh, you were at the right place at the right time because it does make you think that in effect this is a project with a deadline Um, And so how do you think in the future, the narrative of the partition can keep evolving? And and how do you think more young people can contribute? You know, it's interesting you ask that question because a lot of the projects done on partition are spearheaded by young people and as young as in their 20s, you know. Um, And it makes you wonder what happens to memory for it to skip generations. It's actually quite rare for... I wouldn't say it's unheard of, but it is rare for a second generation to embark on a partition project, except if they are writers. This is an interesting uh, foray into the conversation because my next book is on subsequent generations of partition-affected families. So it, it makes you wonder whether you require distance from the event of partition to be able to talk about it with some without bias, I suppose, or without being influenced on to, to either spectrum. Um, so... I feel like one thing is essential, which is to claim the experience. That the experience can be maybe once or even two generations removed from you, but it can still be your experience because it exists in your family. All future projects on partition will probably be, I guess, written or created with distance. Time becomes one of the major components in these projects because we... We write about partition after a certain time has passed, which is why we are able to look back on it and 
retrospectively look at what happened. A lot of the conversations I had with children and grandchildren of partition uh, focused on the language that they used to remember things, which is not to remember partition, but to remember the remembering of partition, if that makes sense, to remember how their ancestors remember partition. You know, a lot of people said to me um, that partition is, is done, it's finished. In fact, someone at my own book release said this to me on stage, uh, which I thought was great. But it's not done. It can never be done. It's such a formative event. It is the reason why we are independent and divided. And from it, 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 it sets precedent for other such divisive events in the future, right? Anytime something happens, people hark back to partition to say, this has already happened before. It, it was interesting the way you said, you know, some people say it's done, but I think nothing is done until people keep speaking about it. And, and, yeah. and you know, that's that's what you're trying to do as a historian. Right. And mm-hmm. I think, the, you know, there are lots of versions also around history. And it's not that, you know, it's just it's a final version. There are a lot of revised um, editions. And I feel it's a never ending um, topic. And I think that's the beauty of of history. You know, yeah. so, you know so you're talking about your book, Anjil, uh, you know, because it's a collaborative project. Uh, you know, like we said, you've there's so many voices. Uh, you've, you know, borrowed stories, uh, stories from so many people. What we loved that, you know, uh, we loved that, you know, your parents had reached out to customers uh, yeah. in the bookstore. And Kisalji, the, the man who accompanied you in Lahore, yeah. he retrieved stories from the house head that you wouldn't have, you know, got access to. So we want to know, can you share one story with us that, you know, he, he brought to you? Well, Kizashi is amazing, firstly. He made, you know, he was so confused first because he 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 used to be the driver of somebody my parents knew in Lahore. And because he was known, that gentleman said to me that you use him for however long you are in the city. And Kizashi was just really confused as to why a young single Indian girl was in Pakistan by herself going to all these old people's houses and spending two, two, three, four hours there, and then coming out really like looking haggard. So he was very confused. And okay, one day he drove me around, two days he drove me around, and we would leave at like 10 in the morning and come back by six in the evening. So virtually the whole day we would be out. And so on the third day, he's like, what are you doing here? What is happening? So I sat and I explained to him what I was doing. And then he just became so invested in the project. He... As you rightly mentioned, he would ask the gardeners or the chonkidars or any kind of help in, okay, oh, these people came from India. What did they bring? Do you know uh, what things were like at that time? So I, I feel like he, we became like, we became like collaborators in some way. And then we would discuss his versions and my versions of the story. And then I would write it. But the thing is, Kizarji contributed a lot of his own wisdom as well. And this is like, you know, I think for me, growing up in a Punjabi household, as a child, I thought all of this to be like a real cultural burden that Punjabis kind of dole out their wisdom when you don't ask for it. I'm sure everyone does it. But um, I just found them to be like really pushy, you know, my own relatives. But then the thing is, there is a charm to it. And there are reasons why why people say things. And Kizuchi also in some way made me realize that fondness for Punjabi culture, because when I started working on remnants, I had been living overseas for about eight years. And, you know, even speaking in Hindi or Urdu was difficult for me. So I had to teach, I guess I had to reintroduce those languages into my vocabulary and become better at them because 
the conversations about partition live in the regional languages they live in the languages of people's childhood so to suddenly ask them in a language that is alien like english is in some way to remove it from the original memory uh, and to to morph it into something else so kizaji also made me realize how beautiful hindi and urdu and punjabi languages were and i'm grateful to him for that but um, there is a story that i write about in my second book that i'll mention here it was a story with um, a hindu man in lahore and he had invited me to a temple in lahore what lahore has two big temples so he invited me to one of them and i tried to tell him that you know i'd rather meet you in your house in the confines of your house with your family where you're comfortable and we can talk you know at leisure i don't want to meet in a temple and he was like nahi aap hindu hum hindu we have to meet in a mandir and also it's like yeah okay fine chalo so and plus he was like you're in pakistan i want to show you our temples so i go to this temple and before that conversation i've had several other conversations in the city i think this was in the second or third week of my being there so i have i had by then spoken to several men and women muslims who had come from india and settled in pakistan and they were all fairly open about their journey and what had happened to them and many of those stories are in remnants as well but this gentleman he was a hindu who had been born in, in lahore and lived in lahore and did not migrate to india during partition he was quite young at partition maybe just a few years old so i wanted to know from him why his family had stayed and what their life was like and it's you know it's such an intrusive thing to ask that because it's kind of like asking muslims in india why did you stay here it's exactly like that and now i'm almost ashamed that i felt it was such a rare thing but the sheer fact that minority populations are so so less in pakistan they they make up such a limited number of people as opposed to india where there is a significant minority population of various religions so this gentleman was telling me how their life was and he kind of just made it seem like a really normal life like they were fine there was no persecution nothing was wrong it was you know beautiful life and i don't know why i just didn't feel like that was the full story i it just maybe it was because i was comparing it to the stories of people who had chosen to go to pakistan the stories of people who were majority population in that country or maybe it was just the openness i don't know i felt really cheated in that moment so needless to say i i left that place very upset and i was pretty much ready to break down and cry in the car and kisaji looks back from you know he looks back at me in his rearview mirror and he's like what happened conversation not okay interview not okay i said no it was not okay and i really didn't want him to keep asking me about it because i would definitely burst out crying and i remember we were on the flyover just in front of minare pakistan and it's like dark and you're driving and he's you know he's looking at the road but he's looking back at me and he's like i want to tell you one thing in this very very pind like punjabi way he says all five fingers of the hand are not the same length and i was like what does that mean <laughs> he said that means that every interview will not be the same every interview will be different and then i remember just looking at my hands and he was right all five fingers of the hand are not the same length and naturally every conversation will be different and i just felt a lot better after that yeah no but thank you but, for sharing the story it been it I mean, and he sounds like a gem i mean and and so amazing. many 
collaborators and i mean it's just so fascinating to He's hear on about facebook oh really unfortunately i don't go on facebook anymore but he is right. and sometimes he sends messages to say aap kab aa rahi hai wapas oh, so sweet so sweet yeah. that's yeah. so wow. sweet yeah i mean like you know like we all have certain well wishers and when we're doing mm. a project that's so hard that's so nice that you had that one of the parts of the book that i absolutely loved was the story of your grandfather and uh, how he came to delhi after the partition and how he set up uh, you know a bookstore bari sons in khan market when it was very different from how it was today mm-hmm. so i've actually grown up visiting delhi because my grandparents live in delhi so i have grown up also uh, you know go- visited the bookstore quite often mm-hmm. um and so i've always wanted to know you know how has a bookstore influenced you i mean how is sort of like uh, being in a family that owns a bookstore influenced you as a person and also as an author well it makes you a reader because you have no choice really um yeah <laughs> i don't ever remember anyone telling me that i had to read i don't think my parents ever read bedtime stories to me either i just remember that there were just books around us all the time and you very naturally gravitated to that you know um yeah i don't think anyone told me that i had to read but i remember as a child i was reading everything and by everything i mean you know in it lighten to sweet valley high to judy pickard everything to your classics um so it and obviously like the more you read the better the better your vocabulary becomes and the, the more imaginative your mind becomes because you're able to visualize and travel to places when my dad came back from work at night he'd be like okay this book has come for you and then i have to cover it and then i have to read it i remember oh being, the dream <laughs> yeah yeah but but you know there was there are downsides to that also so you oh. think that like all books are available to you and you know you can get whatever you want but i remember one year the harry potter book came out but there was like an embargo on when the boxes could be opened so they had oh to be open <laughs> oh no <laughs> so they had to be opened to 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 and i think it was the fourth book if i'm not mistaken the big one the yeah, yeah. fire <laughs> so there was an embargo on when the box could be opened because it had to be opened at the same time or the same day all over the world and i remember my family got the the boxes of books like two or three days before and i was in agony like it's there i can get it but i can't touch it and sure enough i got the book on the day i was supposed to get the book but it you know there were little painful memories like this also yeah that's that this answer really made me smile and it reminded <laughs> me of devil wears prada for some reason where those uh, there's a scene where yeah, those yeah, two yeah, kids yeah, yeah. get the yes. book beforehand yes. yes i was not allowed i was i remember asking my parents that uh, we have it so why can't i take it and they were like no somebody yeah. has to come from the publishing house to open the boxes oh my wow. so, <laughs> this is know, behind the scenes yeah, yeah. yeah really. definitely but i think that i really took it for granted you know i took the fact that uh, okay yeah we have a bookshop for granted i didn't realize how important it was until i became a writer and mind you i never had any aspirations as such as a child to become a writer i was very clear as a kid i wanted to be an artist so much so that one time on a fancy dress competition i dressed up as an artist also very cliche with like the whole palette and you oh, know oh so sweet <laughs> yeah so when i became a writer i understood how integral the bookshop is to a writer's life and to the life of a book how much did it really contribute today we think that it's 
it's easy to order books on Amazon because it's there for us and it gives us large discount. But what we don't realize is that Amazon is an algorithm. It is not a physical person telling you, oh, you've taken this. You may actually like this if it's not built into that algorithm. To be born into a family, a family-run bookshop specifically, not even a chain bookshop, but a family-run bookshop where someone is putting books on a shelf every single day or someone is curating a collection for you gives you enorm- enormous respect for the practice of writing itself. To know that what you write, like it, it's incredible. When I, go, when I go to my bookshop and I see my book on the shelf, it's, it means something. It really does mean something. And I, I think that I'm incredibly fortunate to come from such a family. Sorry, yeah, it's always a dream. Sorry, it's always a dream, you know, like, oh, I'll grow up, I'll, I'll own a bookstore one day. So thanks for sharing. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's I know, I'm sure. I'm sure, no. yeah. And I, I mean, whoever's <laughs> listening to this podcast, I want to appeal to you that um, please try and order books from your local bookshop. It doesn't have to be Barisans yes. at all. Um, mm, yes. There are bookshops all over the country that are struggling because mm-hmm. we cannot offer the same discounts that Amazon or other online retailers can, but you know, it's a relationship. For my yeah. grandfather, selling books wasn't just a profession. It was actually a vocation. And right. how he started selling books was asking people what they wanted to read. Oh. So, yeah, that's how the shop started. Because he, yeah. you yeah. know, before partition, he was uh, doing, he was in grad school, I guess. He was a math student. And so when he came to Delhi, they needed to do whatever they needed to do to make money. And he managed to find enough funds to buy a shop in Khan Market, which was at the time a refugee market. And he didn't know what to put in the shop. He had this big shop and he had no idea what to put in it. So he took the help of another refugee in uh, Granat Place and he asked him, can you help me? And the gentleman said, Prem Sagar, his name was Prem Sagar. He said that all I know is books. If you want to sell books, I'll help. But what you need to do is sit with a pad and paper every day. And when people come in, ask them what they want to read. And this is how you build your collection. Wow. Like a curated list. <laughs> you know, this is the books. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it was such yeah. a personalized thing. So if anyone goes to Barisans today, they will definitely still see a pad and, you know, a pen lying around. Mm-hmm. And You know, speaking about uh, bookstores reminded me uh, of my time in Bangalore. So there's a bookstore there called Blossoms yeah, Bookstore. Yeah, I love it. And it's a secondhand bookstore. Yeah. So, so you know, you, you look at these books and you find notes in them. And yeah. it's, it's a very personal <laughs> connection, which you don't get, right? When, yes. when you order online, especially, yes. there's no personal touch um, to it. So, you know, coming back to your book, um, Anshul, uh, we, we noticed that, um, you know, in your uh, talks at literature festivals or other interviews, you do address the fact that, you know, the book might be closer to North Indians, yes. uh, but you do try to make it accessible to South Indians as well. So I'm a South Indian. I'm from Mangalore. And, and you know, I was curious to know, you know, what is the kind of reception your book has received from other regions? Well, obviously, it will... It'll hit home closest in uh, North India and, you know, Punjab and Bengal. That's the widest demograph. But uh, I was actually very curious when I was uh, when I was in the Hindu Lit Fest uh, in Chennai or in Kerala. I was curious as to how people would engage with with the material. But I was pleasantly surprised to see that there were equally there was equal interest. And I think that just tells you that because partition was a human event, it can be understood by anyone who wants to understand the extremes of humanity, I guess. Uh, Of course, there are not 
I, I will be the first person to acknowledge the limits of my research, which is that I did not have access to people from the South who lived through partition, mostly because partition wasn't as colossal an event in the South as it was in the North. Uh, I understand my limitations in terms of um, caste, in terms of gender, and also the fact that this is a book about objects, which means that the people in the book were privileged enough to carry objects. It doesn't necessarily mean monetary privilege. It can also mean privilege in terms of time. They had to actually get things. So that I was actually first... yeah, one of our questions. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, the thing is, you're writing about something that people could carry, which means that they had enough time or money or something to be able to carry it, right? So I, I will be the first person to acknowledge right, those yeah. limits. But that being said, it's actually, the book has surprised me in many ways, not just in terms of like audiences in the South or audiences in different parts, you know, of the country, but also different parts of the world. Like there have been several people in Germany and Spain and France that have done dissertations on the book. And it makes you wonder why. Well, why is someone in Haifa University teaching this book in their course? It's the same reason why people like you and me read the diary of Anne Frank, even though we we did not live through something like that, it's to be able to understand the extreme of humanity uh, and hopefully to learn from it, right? Yeah, and it is pain and it is trauma at the end of the day, right? So, and we did we did want to ask you about that, uh, you know, Anshul, because you've spoken to all of them, you know, asking them such personal questions. You know, is there any support system to deal with this uh, trauma, you know, therapy or counseling, which is, you know, specific for uh, survivors of the partition? And, you know, even if there was... Uh, they may have not availed of it. Um, but I asked my grandmother this question recently, that uh, if someone would have asked you at the time how it felt, you know, what your situation was, would you have spoken to them? And she said no. There was no need to speak to anybody apart from our family about what we were going through. And even then, sometimes they didn't, you know, even as siblings, they didn't speak to one another. But uh, she also said that they were very young and they didn't really understand what was going on. So I asked her, what about your mother? Do you think that your mother would have wanted to speak to someone? Because she was a single mother. She had, you know, four children with her that she had to educate and marry off. Do you think that she would have wanted to talk to somebody to lighten the burden? And she said she may have. But sometimes talking about it causes more pain. There is a book called In Freedom's Shade, which was originally written in Urdu as Azadi Ki Chhao Mein by Begum Anis Kitwai, who lost her husband to the riots of partition in Delhi. And she began working with Mudula Saravai in uh, refugee camps, particularly with women who had been abducted or had been uh, mutilated or had had violent episodes during partition. And she writes about asking them what happened. So I sometimes think of her as the first oral historian of partition on the ground. I remember talking to Dr. Alok Sirin, who is a psychologist, and he wrote this, co-authored this book with several other people called The Psychological Impact of Partition. And I asked him why there wasn't more testimony on partition. Why didn't people speak about it? And he said that when there are man-made disasters, we don't have any coping mechanisms as we do when there are natural disasters. So when there's an earthquake, when there's a tsunami, when there's, you know, volcano, we know what to do. We have provisions in place. But when there is a man-made disaster that we don't, that we can't even imagine the scale of, to be honest, we have no 
provisions in place to emotionally deal with it. In fact, some people, for most people, to live through partition was so devastating that they just buried it because they, they didn't know how to talk about it. No, and I'm sure that as an interviewer, I can't imagine, you know, how difficult it must have been for you because you, in a way, have become a carrier of all of these stories uh, and a collector of all of these stories. I also want to write my own nonfiction book one day uh, because I'm very drawn. I love research. I love putting things together. Uh, and since you, you know, did so much research, you must have transcribed all of these interviews. What was the process of converting these stories then into that final narrative? Most of my interviews were through word of mouth. I wish there was some like database I could have tapped into and been like, can I interview you, you and you? But unfortunately... I, which is why also my parents and my aunt and everyone had to ask people all the time, did you live through partition? Do you have something? Because it wasn't just like, did you live through partition? It was that, did you carry something? So once I got the interview, I would usually ask the person where they were from beforehand. So I could do a little bit of research about that place and ask specific questions. I don't carry questionnaires. I don't like it. I find them very deductive and limiting. So I basically rely on the conversational aspect of things. And my questions are usually born from the answers that people give, which makes it a pretty open-ended interview and allows me to ask about things that are widely different from the subject of partition. So I would speak to the person, usually in their their language. I I can speak Hindi, Urdu. I can understand Punjabi. So if the conversation was in Punjabi, then I would ask in Hindi. They would answer in Punjabi. It's kind of fragmented conversation. Bangla, Sindhi, Gujarati, I needed translators. But once you have the conversation, you have to transcribe it. And I transcribed everything. I translated everything into English. And then I started writing. And for the writing aspect, I pretty much stuck to the structure of our interview. If you compare my transcripts to my chapters, everything is pretty much in the same order. Of course, you take out or you edit things that you don't need or things that are completely tangential and completely far away from the topic that you're writing about. So apart from that, I did my best to actually stick to the conversation. And as I had been interviewing them, my recorder, audio recorder was recording their voices, but I had noted down movements and gestures because, you know, oral history is not only about what people say, it's also about what they don't say, but what they, what they show you through their movements or how, how their tone changes or when they get more excited or when they get sad. And these are the things that I was noting down. Uh, I also have a habit of drawing as I take notes. So I, I usually drew a lot of the scenes of the room or the light the objects around them. So, okay, so there was three years of interviewing and about a year of actually writing. Yeah, and we also and we also read that you know you have a habit of reading out each line and and that too in the voice and the accent yeah. of, of the person. Yeah. That was so fascinating. Nobody will ever see me writing in public for that very reason. I don't write in cafes. I don't write in restaurants. I just can't because yeah. um, I need to read everything out loud. I read every single line. I try to do the accent if I can. I try to do the intonations because, you know, it's people say things in really specific ways. And so I remember the, the voices, the voices stay with you. And you remember the ways they said things. So I would try and repeat it in the same way. And I think that if it sounds okay, then it will read okay to your reader. 
that's what I always think that this is like my biggest advice to people try reading everything out loud because it has to sound comfortable to you no just it, it that's like writing for audio you know when you write our intros and outros and you you say it out loud and the voice of each of these individuals yeah. has come out so well i especially like um the incident you know when uh one of the ladies was remembering her language sham shamashini i think shamashini i don't know if i'm pronouncing it correctly yeah and how that language is only spoken in um, you know one town in india um, you know and how yeah and how she's now in pakistan and how you know that language will be lost soon and i found that so fascinating yeah but okay what was even more interesting is that i could understand it because i understood both punjabi yeah. and hindi whereas her granddaughter oh. who spoke urdu didn't understand it and she kept asking acha do you know what she's saying right now do you understand this and i was like no i understand everything what's happening you know and banu when she was a child yeah. thought that that was a language her nani and dadi had made up because it was so crude she thought that it was a language they had made up so they could talk to one another and not have anyone else understand yeah could you but you, could you speak it because it so happens you know my um, mom side was gujarati so i understand everything but i just i can't speak it so it's, it's a interesting a, phenomenon in the brain also yeah right uh, which is why i i said earlier that people would speak to me in punjabi but i would reply in in hindi or urdu because um samani shahi is a crude is a mixture of punjabi and crudeish hindi whereas banu who spoke only urdu which is pure urdu is quite different sounding so i think uh, the reason why i could understand her grandmother is because we are attuned to so many different dialects of hindi in india that it became easier for me to understand but i don't think it would sound any different than how i was speaking yeah um, yeah and and <laughs> and what i find interesting is you know like how our uh, you know frames of references can be so limited right yeah. like you said that that girl thought the, the language was made up so mm. for me the most memorable story in in the whole book was of you know fatiha salim the girl who oh, thought yeah. that indians had four heads because you know she saw that on on the currency notes did you come across any other incredible story there's another story in the introduction about the family that carried their parrots across the border and uh, they they left in a plane they could actually charter a small plane and so the pilot of the plane looks back at the family and they say that oh you're carrying your pets you're carrying your animals i couldn't even carry my sisters you know so his sisters had been lost to the riots and uh, this family was carrying their parrots and so once they got to pakistan um pets were banned in the house because it came to represent all those people that couldn't make it across the border yeah and and talking about parrots i also remembered that you know a family took a crocodile uh, oh, the one that they had killed <laughs> yeah that will never leave my uh, memory ever it's extraordinary isn't it it's extraordinary i yes. loved that story so much i felt such joy because um it's so bizarre so partition history is so tied up with geography right and and right. i've always been fascinated by maps and how they're created you know like i mean i've studied cbse um growing up and i really enjoyed our our you know history lessons where we had to mark you know capitals on the maps and i always wondered who decides these borders you know who makes these maps and and your section about the radcliffe line in the book and and the havoc it created my god it was it was one of the most memorable sections i think um you know so were you always interested in geography as a child no no i was not interested in any of this i feel like i had a personality transplant at the age of like my my early 20s honestly i was not this person at all growing up i 
you could you could easily just categorize me as that creative person all i was interested in doing was like painting or drawing that was it that was the extent of my interest and in reading of course but um how can you talk about partition without actually talking about map making or the map maker fascinating guy ratcliffe uh, in my opinion uh, an altogether mit- misunderstood character highly misunderstood character i have grown into quite the ratcliffe sympathizer uh, ever since i oh is it well, that's quite I mean, unexpected <laughs> well just you know i mean it's 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 problematic to say that because i have the weight of partition history from all four sides of my grandparents on my shoulders so the fact that i'm saying that actually means that i believe it right uh, put yourself in his position but you yeah, and you did and you did say that like from the tone of your book i think i did gather that you know he he really didn't know what he was in yeah, for you know right. just randomly select it's kind of like you know people who are picked on duty like you just do it out of duty you do it out of he was also picked yeah. to be like a the fall guy right in some way yes yeah i call myself a sympathizer because i don't know what i would have done in that position and i don't know what he was doing in that position because we weren't there so until i don't understand his his psyche or the constraints that he had we can't conclusively i don't know we can't conclusively say what happened you know all we know is what the map tells us why was the partition line announced two days after independence so independence happened for india on august 15 and for pakistan on august 14 but the partition line wasn't announced until august 17 which meant that people celebrated independence without knowing what side of the border they were on especially if you were in a place that was highly populated by all kinds of religions you could have been in india or pakistan but you wouldn't find out until two days later yeah i like that approach because you know looking at things with nuance and empathy is is so very important um speaking of partition literature mm-hmm. um i know that a lot of our listeners a lot of our audience uh love recommendations and lots of them are avid readers of uh, partition so what recommendations could you share uh, with our listeners who are interested in the subject one of the most interesting books i read in the past few years is called the sixth river it uh, was originally written in urdu as the chhata darya by fikr tonsvi and has now been translated by maz bin bilal into english and it's pretty amazing because it's a journal that fikr tonsvi kept for four months when he stayed in lahore as a hindu he refused to leave lahore he was like i'm not leaving this is my home i live here why should i leave just because i'm hindu so he kept this journal every single day he wrote what he saw and you have a distinct sense of following the aftermath of partition in real time when you read it it's quite eerie because it's not in retrospect it's not memory it's reality and uh, i think it's a book that deserves far more attention it's called the sixth river in english and other books of course any book by anam zakria who is a pakistani oral historian who also writes on partition and kashmir Uh, one book i return to very often is azadi ki chhau mein translated as uh, in freedom's shade by bega manish kidwai then of course ritu menon kamla basin urushi putalia and kavitapuri's partition voices and usually you hear mainstream books but you know there are a lot of books i think that come out of you know academia i mean that are quite i will say popular or familiar in in academic circles so sometimes we don't really hear 
about books. Um, so talking about books, Anshul, we know that you also have a novel that is coming up, which is called The Book of Everlasting Things. And, you know, David Gordon has picked up both of your books. So could you tell us a little bit about your novel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the novel will be out next year in the summertime in India. It's a love story and it is a novel about perfume and war. Intriguing. <laughs> very different. Anything to do with the partition in the novel? Or? Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 Awesome. Yes. It awesome. Spans, uh, it's about it spans uh, four oh, yeah. four generations of a family from World War One to present day. So it includes okay. World War One, World War Two, partition, and uh, the immigration to the West as well. Wait! Can't can't wait to read that and mm, yes. uh, and the other book. <laughs> yes. So uh, the book that is coming out in December is called In the Language of Remembering and it is an anthology of conversations with second and third generations of partition-affected families. It's essentially your question as to what happens with memory after the person who's lived that memory is no longer around. How do we remember partition? How do we carry it along? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to reading that one as well um, and getting a deeper answer. So now we have... Um, our rapid fire round. Whoa. So for this one, we thought we will do a little something that is different uh, and play a little game with you. So what we thought we'd do is name five objects and then you have to immediately respond with what they remind you of or any memory <laughs> that you associate with them. Yeah, like the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear that word. Toothbrush. Morning. Okay, book. Labor. Bed. Sleep. Almira. Furniture. Dupatta. Punjab. Bangle. Kate. Mangtika. Great grandmother. Nice. <laughs> wow, that was very nice. Okay. okay, so we have another question. Okay, so... If you were to make a time capsule that defines you for the future civilization, oh. mm. which objects would you put into it? Oh, my notebooks. <laughs> my yeah. notebooks. I have, uh, oh. I, I write in longhand. Uh, almost, uh, I remember with the novel, I wrote almost the entire novel by longhand first and then, you know, or at least scenes of it. And so even with all my partition research, there are so many notes that go into it, interviews and stuff. So I would probably put in my notebooks. It's the best reflection of who I am. When I was writing my novel, I would, alongside writing the novel, I would also keep notes about what I felt while I was writing the novel. And that I thought that was interesting. I don't know why I did that, mostly to deal with the fact that I was killing off a lot of people and uh, killing off characters. No. Oh, okay. So for me, um, actually, I had two things, uh, you know, this this was just at the top of my head. So one is my glasses, right? My spectacles, wow. <laughs> because I can't do anything without it. I mean, it's basically a big part of my personality. Um, another thing is, I think my watch, uh, the, a gift from my father, which mm-hmm. is a very like a prized possession for me. Yeah, these two yeah. things. No, I like that uh, you guys have like put in some, everything that is not technology. But my answer is my phone with all my photos of my life on it and my laptop with all my work and all my writing and all my projects. Yeah, actually, that's a very smart yeah. option. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also technology. So, I mean, you know, time capsule. So people would wonder, what is this phone at that point of time, you know? <laughs> yeah. But 
It was a lot of fun talking to you, Anshul. I think uh, we got a lot of insights, not just, I mean, not just into partition literature, but but also how you operate, you know, because since you're an oral historian and, uh, you know, this is the first time we have spoken to one. So thank you so much for sharing all those insights. Thank you so much. I loved how she was so real and she spoke about how sometimes things don't go according to plan and I so related to that because I remembered all the bloopers <laughs> yeah. of our recordings, you know, so many things came in the way, electricity, there was one episode where right in the middle, my internet shut off. <laughs> really, my God. I mean, you know, and actually Tara, what's interesting is we're going to be sharing all those bloopers very soon with all of you on our social media handles. Actually, we're going to be talking a lot about podcasts in the month of August because we are launching Pod Squad. Um, so because there are a lot of writing communities, right? A lot of book clubs and we are trying to build a community for podcast lovers, creators, hosts, producers, listeners, the whole community. So we are celebrating podcasts and podcasting in the whole of August. If you want to join the pod squad, the description is in the show notes. And on the next episode, we are going to be speaking to wildlife enthusiast Janki Lennon, who is the author of Every Creature Has a Story. And this is an author that, Michelle, I know you are very, very excited. It's one of your favorite topics. <laughs> yeah, that I love knowing things about wildlife. Actually, I spent hours watching Nat Geo, Animal Planet, and her book focuses on animal behavior. And I think humans can learn a lot from them. Yeah, I think so too. So, you know, tune in. It's going to be a very interesting, something very different. Um, So tune in next week and don't forget to share your personal essays on partition with us by 4th of September and get them read by Archal Malhotra herself. All the details are in the show note. Until next time.